Eddie 603 of Manhattan Homicide to base, okay? Eddie, Eddie 603 of the 4th Homicide to Central, okay? Do you have any message for this unit? Negative. 10-4. The voice of a real-life detective. of a television detective pointing towards 4th Homicide Squad Manhattan of the NPD, the New York Police Department. When I was there in late March, the precinct notice boards read 25 homicides to date, a normal, reasonable figure for the time of year. We were set for, as it happened, a routine and dramatic evening. No Kojak, no lollipops, no dark glasses, no sirens. An evening with the Homicide Squad, in particular with Sergeant Noel Biggins, who comes from Tuam in the County Galway. Sergeant Biggins knows New York like the palm of his hand, especially life as it is given and taken in Spanish Harlem. Uh, you've got a high concentration of uh, drugs, drug use and uh, drug users living in that area to a concentration of people living on welfare. Of course, you've got Central Park running down through the middle. And that is correct. And as you can see right now, there are no uh, pins indicating mm. any homicides. But with the warmer weather, you will find uh, we'll have three or four homicides from that area. What causes that? Well, you get an influx of uh, the transients, uh, people who live rough and who uh, sleep in the park at night, and many of these are drug addicts, uh, or also concentration of alcoholics come in there because of the comfortable surroundings, mm -hmm. and you have disputes amongst them, and that's where you'll get your homicides. What causes most homicides in, in your own experience? Well, most uh, working in the fourth here. Yeah, I was wondering what, what makes people kill. Well, most of uh, our homicides in this area evolve around disputes, whether they're between husband and wife or uh, disputes over, we'd say, in, in, uh, drugs or money. Uh, you may, uh, there's very few for revenge or, you know, hired for hired. It's not as dramatic a thing as one thinks, perhaps? No, it's, uh, I would say not. No, definitely not as dramatic. Family argument? Mostly, quite a few... Uh, emanate from fam family arguments. And indeed, Sergeant, looking too over here at your list, for example, of killings, say, mm -hmm. last year and the year before, mm -hmm. the, the word gun, it figures all oh, the time. It's the, the weapon of choice. It's uh, predominantly used in our, uh, our, our homicides. You'll find that gun and knife are the, the most common weapons. Is, is the gun that easily accessible in New York? Well, New York has got one of the more uh, stringent uh, gun control laws, but the states adjoining New York have got very liberal gun control laws, and as a result, you just pass over the state lines and purchase it uh, in one of the adjoining states. And then again, too, if you want to buy an illicit gun, there are quite a few in the, in the immediate area that are floating around the city. What types of gun do they use? Do you have a regular type? Uh, oh, mostly what we call handguns. They go the whole gambit from Saturday Night Specials, which are a very cheap make, uh, type of gun, usually a twenty-two which are more, uh, more danger to the user than to the person that's being used against. And then you go from quite a few sawed-off shotguns, which are... Shotgun is an accessible mm. 
weapon in New York, and all you got to do is take it home and sew it down. So you got a concealable weapon there. And then again, you get the very sophisticated uh, Berettas and uh, other revolver-type handguns. Now, you've got several factors there described as physical force. Physical force. That can be any uh, type of force. It can be uh, result from using a blunt instrument. It could be leg of a chair, a broom handle, or it could be just strangulation or uh, your own fist, which is uh, good enough to inflict death. Now, you also have, have a list there, and there are, I think, is it four names in the same family? Yes. How did that come about? Oh, that, uh, in this instance, it was a common-law husband uh, had a dispute with his wife, or common-law wife, and uh, um, bludgeoned her to death and her son, and uh, she was pregnant at that time, and the fetus was at a certain, certain stage of development, so it's classified as a homicide also. It died as a result of the... Of the beating. What was the end product then at the end of the trial and well, so on? Well, th this uh, subject has yet to go to trial, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, he was charged with three counts of homicide. In general, what happens if they're convicted? Well, uh, normally they go away to do considerable stretches of time. Uh, that's that's our, all our endeavours are channeled at. Mm -hmm. so hopefully, they usually if they uh, plea or if they uh, found guilty I would say manslaughter one it should be 25 years to life but uh, more often than not they'll get manslaughter two and which would be uh, 15 years to life. Do you find that people say maybe who come out on parole if they can strike again there's a pattern? Well that's true you, you find recidivism is very prevalent amongst our uh, criminal population here in New York uh, in the homicide area it's hard to say though it's not uncommon that a guy may have no prior record before committing his first homicide. They say your better parole risk are people who have been charged with homicide. But in your other crimes, you will find that, uh, especially in the area of robbery, that uh, you will find that most people have extensive records and for the same thing, robbery. Now, you showed me some horrific pictures there yes. of a girl who died. Yes. Now, what actually happened to her? Well, she was uh, bludgeoned to death, uh, and then later on she was thrown from a height. And the police officers come along on the scene, then. is that right? Yes, John. It makes me think that a police officer wants a very strong stomach. It, it's an asset at times if you do have a strong stomach, especially if you get the, uh, arrive on a scene where a body has been in a locked room for a period of time with varying degrees of temperature. It usually takes only a couple of days and it becomes decomposed. And at that time, you do. it is a help if you've got a strong stomach. Now, as we're here, there's a suspect being questioned in another room and you were showing me a bloody footprint. How did you come by that? Well, uh, when we arrive on the scene uh, after the, the ME has um, pronounced him dead and that the, the, the death is a result of a homicidal act, you, we bring in our forensic team and they search the area thoroughly for anything of a fr uh, uh, an evidentiary nature. And uh, this bloody footprint was found at the scene and it's got the potential that we may be able to match it up with a suspect later on. And uh, perhaps your suspect here might be the one. That is true, as possible. What's the technique now for getting information from him? Question, question, question? That is correct. Uh, you go in and you ask him to account for his time and uh, a series of questions. There's no fixed formula or a pattern. You've got to play it by ear with each individual subject that you bring in. And you have two officers doing the questioning? Normally you would have two officers in that uh, 
one officer may be able to develop a tact that the other officer he didn't think of, uh, of or he uh, decided to leave it up to his partner to follow that. Do you use this all sort of, uh, what would you call, mutton jeff technique, one pleasant officer, the other kind of heavy? Yes, that is correct. It's, it's used. And is, is that effective? You'll f we'll find at times it would give you good results. Detectives day room in the sixth homicide zone is bare, functional. Three desks, three tables, files and the inevitable, inevitable for America that is, coffee, black, strong and always necessary. There too sitting quietly was a large man, his trade quite unmistakable, Detective Officer Jack McCarthy. His family came originally from Ballady Hob County Cork, what he called Dan O'Mahony country but both he and his father before him have graced the ranks of New York's finest. Well, in 1956, I started off as a foot patrolman in Harlem, which was a typical assignment. I stayed there approximately nine years, and uh, I was a big man, so naturally I got along all right. And people up there generally don't bother Irish people because they know we like to fight, and that's a good thing on our behalf. Even if you're a calm fellow like myself, it's still it's a good thing to have behind you. Did you come across much violence in the streets in Harlem? Well, I've seen quite a bit of violence over my 22-year career, especially in those ghetto areas. There was quite a bit of violence, everyday violence. What type of violence now was the most common? Well, in Black Harlem, you would see more shooting. In Spanish Harlem, you'd see more knife cutting. It seems to be that uh, they do the damage to each other. They very seldom bother a police officer, even though once in a while you do hear of police officers getting hurt and people getting mugged, but generally they do it to themselves. Were you involved in any kind of incidents during those years in Harlem? Well, I was involved in three uh, race riots. I had a, in the early 60s, there was a general uprising, I guess, all over the world. Students and Black Harlem, they were, people demanded better housing, which they got. And there was a lot of rioting, a lot of shooting, a lot of people got shot. I didn't shoot anybody. I was afraid to pull my gun. I thought I'd shoot myself. Difficult time to be a policeman, though, wasn't it? It was. I was, well, not really, because I was born in New York and uh, I was born in the streets. I was born in an Irish neighborhood, and uh, Black Harlem was also an I uh, not an Irish neighborhood. It used to be an Irish neighborhood, and uh, I heard what it was, and uh, the streets were familiar to me. I didn't live too far away from my, this area myself. I lived in the city at that time, and uh, it was enjoyable to work there because I used to be at work for five or ten minutes and back home again to the safety of a nice, quiet Irish neighborhood. And then after Harlem, how did you go? Well, after Harlem, I was assigned to a plain clothes that was investigating mafia individuals and suppressing gambling and prostitution and that type of work, surveillance. What areas would that have been? Well, it was in Brooklyn because there's a concentration of mafia figures out there. I was there for a year. And uh, I went to the Bronx, then the Fordham Road area. I was there three and a half years. Now, in working and dealing with the mafia, more difficult than Harlem, I suppose? Uh, it is really because... Uh, it seems that their group is a tightly knit group. It's hard to get into their areas because they keep their neighborhood strong. Uh, being an Irish guy and tall, right away, when I walk in, I'm a sore thumb, they know who I am. But the idea is, uh, as long as I know who they are, they can't get away from me. The Mafia is very much a family thing, isn't it? Well, I don't know so much about family. I'm not being raised with those type of people. I know that they are interconnected. That It seems that uh, when one guy goes wrong, he's taken care of somehow. You always, they always end up dead. You can observe it in the street. You see one fellow who's 
moving in on someone else's territory or doing something wrong, or next thing he's dead somewhere, blown up in a car or whatever. So that was the, the Mafia. They were controlling, I presume, prostitution, were they, drugs? Well, they say that. God knows what they control. Now they stay out there with their big suits on. They generally, I think generally that uh, they have never got educated to move into uh, the business world, so they just control their own little things, slot machines and uh, bars and grills, and anything they can get their hands on, protection, anything like that, gambling. Was prostitution very rampant where you were? No, that, uh, I worked on the prostitution detail, uh, we, I can't <laughs> tell you what we used to call it, but uh, we worked in that detail. I worked. I didn't really relish doing that. I didn't like narcotic work either. I did a little bit of that. It seemed to me uh, below my uh, standards. I didn't really relish that type of work at all. So when did you come to homicide then? Well, after uh, playing clothes, I went to uh, the 19th Detective Squad, which is the east side of Manhattan. And that was general detective work. We worked in all cases from misdemeanor cases to anything, even homicides, robberies, rapes, everything, you name it. Homicide then came in 1971. The department decided to specialize in homicide because homicide was on the increase in the city. And I was selected as one of the elite members of the police department, you may say, to join the fourth homicide unit. I've been here since. Can you remember the first homicide you came across? Yes, my first homicide was up in 110th Street in Madison Avenue. and. Uh, there was a person shot in a social club, and uh, I went into the club, and uh, naturally, I'm not a Spanish-speaking person. This is a Spanish area, but uh, no one speaks English, and you speak to these people, and they no comprende. Uh, the thing with those people, you have to go back every day, and every day I did go back there for about six weeks, and finally someone said to me, Officer McCarthy, the guy you want is Raymond, and I went and I locked up Raymond. How did that break come about? Have you any idea? Well, I guess they figured I'd never go away, so they might as well tell me, because they have their little things doing, too. Who knows what they're doing up there, hustle, they sell numbers, they take whatever they do, and they, they don't want me hanging around bothering them either. So if I just stood out there long enough, I figured I'd be a, a pain to them, so they finally told me. I suppose initially for anyone, a police officer, too, uh, death under violent circumstances is a very horrifying and frightening thing. Well, uh, generally seeing death as we do. We see it every day. It's, it's like a doctor would see a, an operation in a hospital. Uh, we've seen tragic things. I've seen bodies dismembered. I've seen a police officer's bodies dismembered in seven, eight pieces all over the place. And it's still, it's horrible to see, but uh, it's a thing you face up to. You go in there, you handle it, but you can't take it home with you because if you start taking things like that home, which is a, it's a grim you know, way to act with your wife, to look at her and look at your children, you have to be impersonal with the thing, but still you have to have a great concern and moral responsibility. There must be fear too, Jerry, for the officer. Well, on occasions we go out, uh, when we finally get close to a case, on the initial investigation, we generally go to the scene. And every homicide, people must remember, there's a victim and there's a perpetrator. Now, the person who committed that crime left some trace. Being a, a mortal person, individual, you have to leave a trace of some kind. Either someone saw you, or you stepped on something, or there's a fiber of hair, or there's some trace. You have to investigate every homicide very closely and carefully from the scene out. And you can't disturb that scene until you get a technician in there to go over the scene with a fine-tooth comb, really look at it, and then slowly but surely work yourself out inch by inch from the scene. Sometimes these cases take a long, long time to break, but they go down because everyone leaves a trace. Do you find that people under questioning become violent at all to you? No, uh, most people under questioning, uh, they tend to uh, 
to lie if, uh, if, if they're involved. But uh, we use polygraph. We request people to take a polygraph test. And uh, when they take their polygraph test, we know what we want. Uh, you see, we have certain keys that only the killer knows. In other words, when we release something to the press, we would tell them the body's in the floor, but we would never tell them that there was a knife in the chest or there was a note or there was some sort of like a bizarre blood writing on the wall or something. We would keep these certain facts to ourselves. So when we go down to a polygraph unit, we and only we and the killer know about that. So when we have our polygraph technician ask these key questions, and that needle starts jumping, we know we got the right guy. Does your work sadden you? No, it's a very satisfying job. In fact, I have 22 years in. My wife wants me to retire, and I'd like to retire, but uh, it's so invigorating to come to work. You never know what's going to happen next. Uh, I know right now the city's in a stalemate to give us a raise. It seems that they're broke and they want to break us, and we'll get along somehow. Now I've got the uh, the tape machine resting on the press. Now, Jerry, what do you want to do here? Now I'm going to make you feel like some of the people feel the process through here. You're putting my thumb on a black surface. That's right, with ink. And I'm going to put you in, right in the ink, as they call it. All right, that's the thumbprint. That's now. you. Well, that's see, me. See your name right oh, there? Oh, they're interesting looking here. This is the index finger. A sly looking devil you are. Indeed, you're pressed Indeed. right down. Hands of a criminal. Oh, my God, yes, yeah. Tough fingers. There we go, there's three. There's three. Do people object, by the way, to this when it's being done? Well, they can't object to it if... Ordered by law to take fingerprints. Sometimes if they... There we go. We've got, we got the prints. Oh, no, now. that's only four. Oh. We need five oh, more. Oh, I see, you've got five Not more. Not so fast, you know. We're going to the left hand now. Is that, is that ink, this uh, surface? It's in the ink. We're rolling the thumb again. Going Pressing around. it down. That's right. Index finger again. Press it down again. Are they good prints coming up now? There. Look very legible. They look very legible. They look like you've been printed before. Not in New York. Anyway. <laughs> well, we don't know. We better call Interpol. On call this. Interpol. You might have a job on this in hands. All right. We're not finished yet now. Now they're the ten anyway. What happens after well, this? Now we put them all together. Oh, you're rolling. You're um, you're rubbing across again now. Keep them out straight out together. This oh, is only one set. We usually make three sets. This is for New York City, you see, in the top. That's the left hand. And then we make a state copy and we make a federal copy for the FBI. This is the thumb. Now the right hand. Right. Thumb first. Thumb again. Right. Press hand. it right down again. Okay. And then the uh, four fingers together. Push it down again. And I'm completely dossiered now, am I? Right. Now, this copy would be a New York City copy. Then we make a state copy and a federal copy. If you're No, say, say, for example, now look, you might find black... Tom here, Looks what nice would you one. see as the principal characteristic there if you were looking for somebody? Or is it, is it well, obvious? you start with the arch in the middle. Yeah. And you need at least five or six ridges where you have it. To read a print, you have a, I see a, an arched well, a loop. You have what they call a looped arch. Is that right, side? It's like yes. a fortune told. That is correct. He's got a, a looped arch there. It's very legible. There are certain characteristics, aren't there? Quite yes, legible, you've got yeah. your... You see the little twirl in there? I do, yes, yeah. That's classified as a loop. And then on each one, you've got so many ridges, and they count the ridges. And I've got several ridges. I'm pretty well ridged, in fact. Thank God they're on your fingers, not on your face. Yeah. <laughs>
Sergeant, we've seen a case there of um, a person who killed several, I suppose you'd call him a multiple killer. A mass killer. A mass killer. What type of character will do this? Usually they're, they're sex deviates and usually uh, mentally disoriented or uh, suffering from some kind of a mental disability. Mm. I suppose, uh, Jerry, in this city you have lots of people living on their own, lonely people, old people who are quite susceptible to this sort of thing. Well, that's right. Since the neighbourhood concept of the city is broken down, uh, most people are all uh, thrust into these hotels where there's no one to take care of them, and uh, it's, it's really tough on them because, uh, God knows, the neighbours can't take care of them, they can't even take care of themselves. And those are the people that would be susceptible to uh, any sort of an injury or even getting sick, you know. They would fall there dead uh, for days, no one knows they're gone. I suppose, too, you could have cases that might seem uh, just death from natural causes and wouldn't, in fact, be that way. Well, generally, when we respond to a scene, we look for uh, any break on a window, any sort of a larceny or any break on the door or anything out of the ordinary. We interview people, or is anything missing here? And uh, sometimes we wait for the medical examiner and we get his report. And uh, he's the person who classifies what a death is in the city. If he says it's a natural, well, it's natural. If we're suspicious and we think it's something else, we continue our investigation. If we get more evidence, we give it to him. If he wants to change his classification, fine. Most often he doesn't because, uh, after all, he is a doctor and he says we're only detectives and we just do our thing and he does his thing. What's the approach in general to that sort of killing? Somebody breaks into an old lady? Well, most people that would do a thing like that, uh, like the sergeant said, are sex deviates, and uh, they would pick on an old person because they know there's, uh, there's no struggle. They may be just looking for a couple of pieces of change, some sort of sex, and uh, they would suffocate the person by threatening them. If they say a word, they're going to kill them, and then they put a pillow over their face, and then the people next door, naturally, they're old and sleeping, whatever, they don't hear the noise. The person will put the pillow over their face, hold it there a few minutes, then replace the pillow where it was and sneak out of your apartment. No one knows the better of it. Can you remember your first homicide case? Oh, well... Yes, but that's going back years ago when I was a uniformed officer on patrol. That's very, it leaves a sort of an indelible impression on your mind, your first one when you arrive on the scene. Especially Can you tell us about it? Well, uh, it was, I believe, again, a boyfriend-girlfriend dispute where she just struck, stabbed him once with a knife, but that one blow was lethal and the knife was still protruding from his body when he arrived on the scene. Do you find that people perhaps who kill in the heat of passion, that they will admit practically straight away? Or well, not? Um, it would be very hard to make a uh, cut-and-dried rule on that. As I said, nearly each investigation or each homicide is sort of unique in itself. Uh, in, in instances of you know people killed in the course of passion, uh, you normally it's not premeditated in that sense, and you, your criminal is not as uh, you know does not try to conceal these tracks. So you you got an advantage there. But as to coming to you and blurting out, "I killed him," that doesn't happen that often. Also, too, of course, you never, you rarely meet p people when they want to welcome you. Isn't that right? Well, yes. Yeah, sad to say, uh, uh, in the case of police officers, they, the most time that they're in your home is under a crisis conditions, and you know we see people at their worst, and uh, they they see us as uh, 
enforcers of the law, which is really wrong because we're very human. Do you have a rule of thumb at all yourself, or is each case so different? Uh, it's like each case is pretty unique. You would, uh, you'd be really going on the limb if you said they were all a uh, carbon copy, because uh, um, it depends on the, 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 the deceased, depends on where the homicide took place, uh, the type of what, uh, uh, what the homicide evolved from, if it was a dispute or if it was a, during the course of a commercial robbery or mm -hmm. in a fit of, uh, fit of rage. What do you think you learn from death and stress and violence and homicide? Well, it's far too prevalent that, uh, that some people take life very cheaply. Do you find that, that your own insights into people have changed? Does it make you pessimistic to be dealing with this all the time? Well, to be a police officer you, you have to, a degree of cynicism and you find that it um, just sort of become reinforced when you're in homicide or working with homicide. And why did you join the police initially? Well, uh, I thought it'd be an interesting job, and it has been to date an interesting job. Now we're talking about death all the evening along here. Yeah. How do the Irish figures say in your homicide files here? Is there a high percentage or low percentage? I can say without fear of contradiction that we don't have any as of now in my file, and hopefully I won't have any. And uh, you find here in New York City that there one of your most law-abiding segments of your population. What's the most frightening part of your job? I mean, you're called out in a case. Which one would you say to yourself, I better be particularly wary there? Well, when you've got somebody identified and you know he's got a history of violence and you've possibly got him cornered in a room or you're going to uh, pick him up at his apartment, you've got to be very careful how, he's going to, how he is going to react. And uh, it's very hard to see how he's going to react. What sort of weapons would you use in those circumstances? Well, normally, as I said, if we know enough about the subject that we're going to uh, apprehend or we're going, we're going to bring in for questioning, um, if he's got a history, prior history for violence, you would be uh, to your advantage to go out with a bulletproof vest, which we do. We, keep, we have bulletproof vests, and we have um, sawed-off shotguns, uh, which in you know, close quarters can be very lethal, and they give you psychological clout at times. How does Kojak seem to you, to ask you a light question for a change? Uh, well, Kojak, of, uh, of all the uh, TV uh, series, or correction, police officer series on, on TV, um, he's, a more, he's more true to the real police scene than the others. Uh, the others seem a little over-glamorized. Uh, though, sad to say, uh, we're not as successful as Kojak. We, <laughs> we do not have a 100% uh, clearance. Uh. And, and I suspect to a sergeant you're hardly paid as much as Kojak. Definitely not. <laughs> So on a dark, cold night in March, we leave the comfortable precinct and head out into the dank, glistening, half-empty skyscraper streets of downtown New York. We're going to journey to the east side, and uh, in route we'll pass through uh, Central Park, which is uh, one of the recreational areas in New York City. And how long, how long would it take, Sergeant, to get through your whole area in the car? Uh, from... River to river, we take about a, uh, a half an hour. Yes, yeah, so I'm constantly in touch with my command, and also I've got to uh, can listen to the uh, 
type of radio runs that are uh, being broadcast for our division. You, you were saying that oftentimes uh, Friday night can be a busy night. That is true, especially in the warmer months. Uh, get an inordinate amount of work from you know, run-of-the-mill family disputes to uh, catastrophes. The warm weather does contribute a lot to our work. A cold spell can be a very good ally for the police officer in that it keeps a lot of problems off the street. As you can hear, we use a lot of cold words. I thought they were cold words. I didn't know yes. what they were saying. Uh, now we're, we're approaching a tunnel here, are we? Yes, this is the transverse road at 79th Street in Central Park. Uh, you just left Central Park West, which is quite a status address, and you're journeying over onto the east side, which is known as the Blue Stocking Belt. Uh, some of your wealthy pe wealthiest people in New York reside in this part of the uh, city. Also, um, earlier in your precinct, we were talking to some of the officers, and people talked about um, officers working together. They're invariably in twos, are they? That is correct. You normally work with a partner for... Uh, for safety reasons and uh, also uh, to act uh, in some instances as a corroborating witness when you may need somebody to uh, witness you taking a statement or uh, making an apprehension. And can you often, quite often, get a dramatic message on that radio there when you're Quite often. They have got one code signal which is a 1013 and it means a assist police officer or a police officer in distress. And a call like that, you pull out all stops and if you're within a you know, uh, several blocks, you will respond irrespective of the boundary lines. Normally, uh, you could, if you're just on routine patrol and a, and a signal comes over from the adjoining precinct, it is not your precinct, so you do not respond unless it's one of an emergency nature, like some uh, an instant where somebody be in danger of being seriously hurt or something of that nature. But when the 1013, a signal, code signal 1013, uh, is broadcast, you stop everything and you respond to that location. Do you have a siren in this car? Yes, there's a siren and also there's a, uh, a outside broadcasting system. I can pull motorists over by uh, addressing my commands over the air to them. Oh, it can be heard outside? Yes. I better not do that. I might cause a little panic here. But, uh, this uh, set here, you can normally pull somebody over from, without it lighting from your car. And where are, where are we now here? We're now at uh, 79th Street and Lexington Avenue. Uh, as I said, it's one of the more affluent areas in the city. Uh, a little further south here, you got Lenox Hill Hospital, which is quite a hospital. Is there any particular time of night more dangerous than another in New York? Yes, the, uh, I believe they've pinpointed it to Fridays and Saturdays nights between the hours of 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning. And if you were to, uh, to draw up a pattern, you would find that it's sort of the amount of incidences you have during those hours are very pronounced. I talked earlier too to you about uh, having to carry a weapon. You're supposed to carry it at all times. That is correct. It's, it's mandatory that we uh, uh, carry our sidearms uh, 24 hours a day. That's if you're up and about 24 hours a day. And um, do you do training ever so often? You do? Yes. Uh, there again, department regulations mandate that we uh, qualify at least twice a year 
and uh, most detectives also got to qualify with the sawed-off shotgun. That's a very busy radio, isn't it? Yes, this is one, one, one command alone, is the 2-3, as I said, it's got a heavy population and it's a very busy uh, location. That's not a police car in front of us there, no? That's correct, that's, that's from the 19th precinct now, we're within, we're within the confines of the 19th precinct. We're in 2nd Avenue now, are we? That's correct. This unit will be on that same radio that you're listening to right now. This is the 19th precinct and where most of the activity at the moment is taking place is up in the 2-3. Okay, that's 314 East 106. And now looking for a parking space. Oh, is that what you're doing? Do you travel at any set speed when you're going around? On patrol, the guidebook or the rules and procedures that, you know, outline the regulations of the department. Lay down that you should travel at five miles per hour, which is sometimes is not very practical. In that's very practical. Uh, you, you may cause a monumental traffic jam, or uh, to respond to an emergency at that rate would be very uh, foolish. Wouldn't make the police any more popular than they are, or, or not, as the case may be. That is very true. Mm. It, it's a lonely enough job in its way, isn't it? That is true. You find that most police officers, when they socialize or even leave the, you know, their commands, they, they socialize with other uh, police officers. So you, you find that civilians at time have a hard time relating to you. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, your crazy hours, and secondly, the type of work you do and the the, the clientele that you normally come in touch with. Don't you find too that civilians are a small bit afraid of you? Yes, uh, sad to say, which I, I would like it to be the reverse, that they were a little bit more uh, cordial and a little bit uh, more friendly. just heard there earlier on the call about yes. stabbings. Yes, it, it, code signal 1034 came over, which uh, uh, means that uh, there is a, an assault in progress, and uh, it's requesting units to respond to a location on 92nd Street. Police car flashing in front of us now. Uh, well, this unit is not, a, it's a 19th precinct unit, and the unit they're requesting is a 2-3 precinct unit. In all likelihood, this, this, uh, this vehicle is going to another run here. Did you ever have a, have a, a gun pointed at you with intent to do damage? On several occasions, uh, I've had the misfortune of looking down the barrel of a gun. Is uh, it possible to say how you would have felt at the time? <laughs> very scared. Huh. Uh, you, it's very. You, uh, your heart starts thumping, and uh, you're just hoping for some kind of a miracle. Unfortunately, in all the instances where I had, up to uh, now, you've obviously not had any. I've been very lucky. <laughs> what's What's the police drill in that case? In In, in a situation like uh, somebody pointing a gun at you. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I would. If If, if the, the subject holding the gun on you on you wants something, 
You pivot move. If it's if it's like a uh, combat situation, you just uh, pull your own revolver. If it's, if it's not already on holster, then uh, exchange fire with him if he's firing at you, and hope that. Uh, I noticed tonight in the precinct a great respect for revolvers and weapons. Oh yes, safety with the firearms is emphasized uh, because uh, you know uh, one cares little acting you might do doing tall damage and uh, weapons or handguns are, are very fickle you've got to you know treat them right so uh, the, the regimen in the uh, police department is that uh, you uh, take great caution at all time how you unload and how you load your firearm and where you maintain it you you keep yours down on your leg is that for is that for ease of getting at well I wear an ankle holster in that uh, one, it, it is convenient to get at, and two, it uh, saves wear and tear on your clothing because if you constantly wear it in your waistband, you'll find that your waistbands expand and you, the friction on your jacket puts a hole in it. This is why Kojic has so many new waistcoats, I suppose, in the That's very possible, one reason why he's got them. Where are we now at the moment? We're heading towards the uh, 59th Street Bridge. Driving over cobbles now, yeah. Cobblestones. This is what the old streets in the city were formerly made of. And you got here the tramway, which is a elevated tramway that which leads over to Roosevelt Island, which is an island on the on the in the East River. And it's a very new uh, community they've just built over there of luxury housing. Here you've got some of your most uh, expensive housing in New York. Uh, on 57th Street here you got the Sovereign, which had. Uh, came in for a lot of not notoriety lately. You had a uh, two people killed there by a couple of uh, parolees. And Do you think often, by the way, we see the bridge now facing us, that your public and the media are not sufficiently aware of the difficulties facing police officers? At times, they're a little apathetic to the problems of the police officer. And as I said before, the majority of occasions when we meet them are stressful occasions and they have very few occasions to see us under happy circumstances. How is your own public relations in the police department? Uh, my, mine personally are well, the, 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 are the, uh, general. the uh, department's policy. Mm. Well they strive at it. They, they're constantly trying to project a, a, a positive image and uh, as a matter of fact we've got officers assigned full-time to it, uh, usually under the title of community affairs officer or community relations officer. And uh, they, they run like uh, uh, recre recreation programs for the children and uh, so forth like that. And they, they help senior citizens, tell them how to protect their property and how to protect themselves from attacks. Or if they're, if they're attacked, how to react. And uh, we've got two or three new units in the department. And one of them is a senior citizen uh, uh, unit. And it handles uh, crimes perpetrated against people over 62. Do you have many officers who are killed in the job? Uh, yes, in past years we've had a pretty high mortality rate, but uh, so far to date this year uh, no police officer has been killed and hopefully that will be the statistic for the whole year. Another element strikes me too, surely in a stressful life like yours it must make, for example, a married life a difficulty and lead to problems. Well, married life you need a very understanding partner when you work in police work in that your hours are very erratic uh, you may be scheduled to be home at one o'clock or uh, 12 o'clock and the case is just breaking and you just got to stay with it it may be uh, uh, two days later that you show up at home and especially in situations where you got a young family uh, 
the whole onus is put on the on, on the wife to uh, bring up the kids, and it is tough in that respect. Uh, as a matter of fact, the police officers in the continent of the United States, uh, they got a very high divorce rate, and two we have some people resort to alcohol as a uh, as a uh, catharsis or a cure as well. And you certainly have plenty of um, plenty of rain tonight lashing here now. Oh, well, hopefully it'll be to the to our advantage in that it'll keep crime off the streets. We find that weather is a uh, is a great ally for uh, in, in police work. You'll notice in cold spells or when there's a heavy snowfall that your uh, certain type of crimes will uh, be, will be diminished greatly. And there again, too, during the hot summer months, uh, you have a uh, corresponding uh, upsurge in crime in that you know, I got a lot of people on the street, there's more contact with each other, a lot, of mo a lot more drinking, possibly just to quench their, you know, their, their thirst due to the heat. And as a result, you got many confrontation situations developing that wouldn't normally develop. How often do you have medical examinations in your job? Well, on entering the job, you have a medical examination, and every time you go sick over, you've got to be... Uh, go to a police department surgeon. You just can't call up and say I'm going sick. You gotta be certified by a police department surgeon. And if you suffer any kind of an in injury on or off the, the job that may disable your work uh, so that you are, so it may limit your uh, capabilities, you gotta undergo a medical. It's a very stressful career, of course. That is that is without saying it's and very stressful. Where, where are we here now? We are now uh, journeying towards uh, 23rd Street. Um, 2nd Avenue. Over here to our left, which you can see through the, the breaks in the buildings, you got Bellevue Hospital, which is one of the older uh, hospitals in New York and one of the better, uh, better medical schools uh, associated with it. it it's uh, one to, uh, which has got a, a lot of contacts with police in that most of your emergency situations are rushed to Bellevue. They're very capable and able in, in handling st stab wounds and gunshot wounds and things like that something that the other more smaller hospitals are not that familiar with. And so I bade good night and good morning to Detective Sergeant Noel Biggins of Homicide. He returned to sign off and I returned to my hotel as the rain dripping down the back of my neck was sweet music and the windscreen wipers of an unmarked NPD car, of course. <laughs>